Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show that mostly is about New York City's extraordinary neighborhoods. On most programs, like today's, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring its history and also its current energy, texture, and vibe. What makes that amazing New York City neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes, not like today, we host a show about an interesting part of theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, we've covered topics like a history of U.S. presidents who came through or lived in New York. We had a show once on the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. We talked about the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York. We had several special episodes during Stonewall 50, and we even explored the history of bicycles and cycling, which had been in our city for 200 years. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, the age for a particular social or political movement or musical genre, and I am promising you now that I'm working on a show about punk in New York. It's taking a while to put that one together. Uh, or unique New York architectural phenomenon. Uh, next month, we're going to have a special show on Rockefeller Center and also the Woolworth Building. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. Uh, you can get us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there are others. Uh, today, we are headed to one of Manhattan's most iconic neighborhoods and one where I can proudly say I live, and that's Harlem. Our first guest is no stranger to rediscovering New York. She is a regular. She is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors to our great city alike to rave reviews. She hosts private walking tours as well as tours that are open to the public. Her website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce has also published. Uh, she has two guidebooks. One is From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan. And the second one, From Trout Stream to Bohemia, sounds like a fun one, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. I wonder what the trout were like in those days if anyone went trout fishing in them. She has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 Review. And we heartily welcome back Joyce Gold to Rediscovering New York. Joyce, welcome back. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, some of our listeners know about your history, but uh, some of them don't. We have new listeners, new listeners every week. Um, you're not originally from New York, are you? No, I am from a small town in Pennsylvania, but I've lived in New York for almost all of my life, ever since the ninth grade at any rate. I moved to town with my family. And I and uh, actually the people in the studio know how you got into the business of illuminating and entertaining New Yorkers about our neighborhoods, but it's a great story. How did you get into the business of what you do now? Well, in the 1970s, I was a computer analyst and I was working on Wall Street. And Wall Street happens to be in the oldest part of Manhattan. The southern tip is where the Dutch first settled. But I really didn't know much about that until one day when I purchased a 100-year-old book about New York about, uh, earlier than that. And it was about streets that I passed every day on my way to work. Suddenly, commuting was much more fun, much more interesting. The more I knew, the more I wanted to learn. And um, I started giving walking tours to friends on weekends. 
and then to other people on weekends. And uh, for many years now, I've been doing it full time, which is a much more interesting way to do it. Mm. And full disclosure, I can say that I have been on dozens of Joyce Gold tours. Joyce and I partner on tours that I do for my real estate business. Um, Getting to Harlem, uh, before we talk about speaking of the Dutch uh, in, in New Amsterdam, um, who inhabited uh, the part of the island that would eventually become known as Harlem? Well, the people who were here when the Dutch arrived in 1624 were the Lenape, Lenny Lenape Indians, also sometimes called the Delaware Indians. And they had at least 13 sites that we know of in Manhattan, including in Harlem. They liked to choose a place that had good drinking water, good fishing, and some kind, some kind of protection, partly to protect themselves against the Indians upstate, who seemed to be a little bit more um, progressive, more uh, aggressive. Oh, so I suppose people wanted in on real estate in New York even before the Dutch came. That's a that's a comforting feeling. Um, when did the neighborhood we know as Harlem first become a locus where, in our day, we, we, we would have recognized some kind of a town or a settlement or groupings of people with houses? And Well, it was a farming community for much of the Dutch period because of the city of the Dutch times was at the southern tip of the island, but you couldn't really farm there. And of course, people needed to eat, and the backyard gardens weren't really going to feed enough of them. So in the 1650s, farmers moved to East Harlem, and that was also very fertile ground, possibly had been farming for the Native Americans as well. Uh, But they were attacked by Indians, and the governor, Peter Stuyvesant, said that he wasn't going to allow them to be up there because he couldn't protect them. And what they said in 1658 was, what about if we build our houses near one another with our farms on the opposite side, and that way we can protect one another? So you might say that the village of Harlem begins in 1658, and one of the reasons, uh, many reasons, that Harlem I find so appealing is that it is one of the earliest places in town settled by the Europeans. Mm. And uh, uh, it does maintain the same name, similar to that. It was called New Harlem? Yes, it was. It was. After Harlem in the Netherlands, and uh, actually, if anyone has never been to Harlem in the Netherlands, it's a, it's a beautiful town. They have an extraordinary cathedral. It's really, really something. Well, there were two reasons that they apparently chose that name. One was because in the southern part of the town, the city was called New Amsterdam, and in the Netherlands, the city of Harlem was about 10 miles from Amsterdam. Here, New Harlem was 10 miles from New Amsterdam. Also, in the Netherlands, people of Harlem were known for their bravery and, as they were, living way uptown in somewhat dangerous territory. Mm. See, the Indians had something of a tribal sense of justice so that if the whites attacked Indians, they didn't necessarily go after the same uh, perpetrator. They attacked whites, and that's why it was kind of dangerous uptown. Oh, wow. And we sh- and the first settlement was actually in the eastern part of Harlem? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Harlem, uh, for those uh, people who may not know, Harlem is actually the biggest neighborhood in Manhattan. It goes from river to river, mm-hmm. and 96th Street on the east all the way up to 155th on the west. Uh, 155th on the north and down to 125th on the west. west, right, right. And the two rivers that it's between are the Hudson and the Harlem River, not the East River. Well, it's interesting that we still have the name Harlem because mm-hmm. New Amsterdam, of course, became New York. 
Um, didn't the British try to change the name of Harlem at some point? They thought Lancaster would be a very nice name, but New Yorkers <laughs> often refused to change, just as the city tried to change 6th Avenue to Avenue of the Americas, but no New Yorker ever had the time to call it something <laughs> so long, and perhaps that's why the, the name Lancaster never took over. Ah, well, and so we still have Harlem to this day. Um, but speaking of British and around the time of the Revolution, uh, there is some important founding father who has a very uh, localized personal history there. That would be Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton lived in many places. He was the Secretary of the Treasury when the federal capital was in New York. He lived on Wall Street, among other places. When the federal capital moved to Philadelphia, he lived in Philadelphia, and he always rented. But in uh, the beginning, uh, in 1801, he decides to own a place, and he had some friends who had estates uptown, and he thought that, you know, he was rather traumatized when his oldest son in 1801 was killed in a duel, Philip. And so he decided, or as Lin-Manuel Miranda says in the play about him, he says to his wife, let's get a little place in Harlem and figure it out. So he purchases basically a hill, now called Harlem Heights, and builds a magnificent home up there at the top of the hill. Why did he, did, did he actually call it the Grange? I'm not sure if he did, but of course, the Grange is a house on a farm, and his ancestral, his Scottish ancestors, had a place called the Grange. So it's very likely that he did call it that. Actually, now I remember, I used to do business in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and uh, outside uh, Frederickstead, which is on the west coast, the, the western side of the island, uh, there was uh, um, like a segment of land called the the Grange, the Grange that might be where his where he was from. Uh, I should check into that. Um, why in Harlem and uh, why not some other part of let's say farmland? Because Manhattan was pretty big, the island was pretty big. What was it that had him decide that you know this well, part of Harlem is where I want to be? Harlem was considered more healthful. It had uh, hills in the not in the eastern part. In fact, that it was flat in the eastern part. That's why they used it for farmland. But in the western part, it had hills. It had uh, salubrious breezes. You know, people before air conditioning were very aware of their health. And cool breezes and being on the top of the hill seemed to be much more healthful to them. Hmm. Well, the... Oh, there's another reason also. When he stopped being the Secretary of the Treasury, he was the hottest lawyer in New York. And by 1800, the federal capital had moved to Washington, D.C., and the state capital had moved from Manhattan to Albany, and he was on the road that led to both of these places where he still did a lot of work. Wow. Um, the Harlem that we know today uh, ended up getting, uh, being built on largely in the second part of the 19th century. What happened in Harlem between the time that the British evacuated Manhattan in 1783 until after the Civil War? What, what's the history of Harlem during that almost you know, Well, it was quite years? rural because most of the jobs were in the southern tip. And again, that was not only 10 miles away, but the transportation wasn't very good. A, a boat would take quite a while to get. There was a horse railroad, I believe, for a while. Uh, but it was the transportation, and the good transportation isn't until 1880. Mm. And that's the bringing of the railroad? That's uh, the beginning of, bringing of the elevated trains. Of the train. elevated trains, okay. There was a railroad there earlier. And that was the New York and Harlem that went up uh, Fourth Avenue? Okay. One of the three that Commodore Vanderbilt owned. 
Was there a difference in the in the uh, the people that came in the development between the New York and Harlem Railroad versus the L trains? What was the was was there a difference in how that yeah, impacted the the New York and Harlem? Maybe some people in industry or people in crafts or farmers, especially. But with the elevator train, that meant in a what they figured was a reasonable time, you could get to your jobs on Wall Street, and so very upscale people. Before the L, it was largely a summer community or large estates. Once you had the elevator train, uh, it was a place that people could commute downtown to. And uh, Harlem was, uh, in the early part of this, was not part of New York City, but eventually got subsumed by New York. Yeah. Well, when the English come over, uh, take over, come come in in 1664, uh, Governor Nichols draws a line from the West 100s down to about 74th Street on the east side, and said it's Harlem above this. Uh, but really, it was always part of Manhattan and of New yeah. York City under the British. And uh, after the railroads, also, I'm sure the construction of the subway, uh, the opening of the subway in 1904, mm-hmm. also really uh, led to more people moving to Harlem. Very much, something. yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold uh, about Harlem. Be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, that's me, and with our first guest, the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. I forgot the that adjective the oh. first time, Joyce. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and you are amazing. And speaking of your amazing work, why don't you tell our listeners about, about your tours and the couple that you have coming up that uh, and how people can find out about them. Thank you. Well, I do tours of 40 neighborhoods of the city, and I have many tours of some of those neighborhoods. And my specialty is really being very accurate, being very engaging, and fitting 
the presentation to the audience. It can be kids, it can be a corporation, it can be a family, and um, this is what I do. So the financial district, Greenwich Village, Harlem, ethnic tours, Italian tours, Jewish tours, uh, they all seem to fit a need, whether for local people or people visiting. Of course, I'm probably your greatest testimonial, <laughs> or one of the greatest, because uh, we do we partner on about 10 tours a year. Um, how can people find out about your tours? Where can they go? To? I have a pretty good website, I'd say, and it's, it's JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. And they can find out about my public schedule, where you just can show up if you're in the mood. I usually do one or two a week all year. And they can also find out all of the choices of my private tours. I have to warn people, though, it can be a little overwhelming and hard to choose. Uh, uh, and it takes me four years to <laughs> cycle through all, your, all the tours that you do. <laughs> Actually, five now with the extra ones that you put on your roster, which I'm grateful for. Uh -huh. um, moving back to Harlem, Harlem is known as being um, a center of, of the African-American community in New York. But mm -hmm. there were other ethnic communities that people don't usually associate with Harlem, that, that people who came and settled there before mm -hmm. uh, it became a, a predominantly African-American neighborhood? Well, in, a, in, the 18, uh, in 1850, 52% of New York was foreign-born, and half of that number had come from Ireland, and a quarter of that number came from Germany, and many of those people did move to Harlem. Uh, by 1910... Some of those people had moved out, and Harlem becomes the third most populated Jewish neighborhood in the world. Uh, the Lower East Side, with half a million Jewish people, was number one. Warsaw, Poland, with 337,000 people, was number two. And Harlem had 100,000 Jewish, Jewish occupants, including being the birthplace of some of very famous people, like Arthur Miller, the playwright, and... Uh, Richard Rogers and uh, Oscar Hammerstein Jr. and so forth. So uh, that was a very big Jewish enclave, but that was basically west of Third Avenue, east of Third Avenue, uh, also coming into New York around the same time as the Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe were people from Southern Italy. And that was a very populated Italian neighborhood. Right by Pleasant Avenue and the one... Exactly. The one, yeah, yeah. There's still a funeral parlor. There's still uh, on Pleasant Avenue, Rayo's famous Italian a tiny restaurant, and a few leftovers. Usually, I think, if you want to see what ethnicity used to be in a neighborhood, houses of worship and cuisine stay on the longest. Mm. Uh, I actually had a, uh, uh, someone who bought an apartment that I was representing in the Upper East Side. Uh, at the time, she was in her 80s, and she had grown up in her father's house on Pleasant Avenue. Oh, interesting. That's where they were from. Yeah, so they were there for a long time. Oh. Uh, a couple of things I found interesting, too, talk about older Harlem. Uh, you, meant, you mentioned Oscar Hammerstein Jr. Oscar Hammerstein I opened up the Harlem Opera House on 125th Street. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, I think, in 1897, and they started showing films there in the 30s before it was demolished in 1959, before, of course, we had a landmarks law. I saw a picture of it that probably would have qualified to, mm -hmm. would, would, have made, would have made the cut. Uh, and also there were, uh, around the time of the First War, there was, First World War, First War, that's my English education coming out here, there was uh, uh, actually active Italian and Jewish local mafia. And I was oh, surprised yes. to hear that 116th Street between Lennox and Frederick Douglass was a vice district. Yes, and sometimes there were bu actual bullets flying on the street. People had a duck. Oh, gosh. 
When did Harlem start to become home to substantial numbers of African Americans? Well, African Americans moved to Harlem very early on. The first blacks come to New York in 1626, and some of them, very not very many, lived up there. Now, they didn't come of their own free will in 1626. They did not. But 18 years later, some of them are given at least half freedom, and so there were black enclaves uh, at that time. As a matter of fact, there were both communities of blacks living under slavery and not under slavery between 1644 and 1827. That's when slavery ends in the state of New York, 1827. But a lot of that changes. Even though people were not living under slavery, there was a lot of discrimination against black people, as we know, for a very long time. And a lot of neighborhoods would not rent or sell to them. So around 1900, the main black enclaves were the West 30s, 40s, and 50s. But there was a lot of urban renewal going on there. The new Penn Station, which opens in 1910, uh, was built on a huge block of what previously had been black tenements. The excuse me, the uh, rails going into Penn Station uh, uprooted many black people. Uh, There were race riots, a lot of them sort of Irish versus blacks in San Juan Hill, just above the uh, West 50s. And nobody would rent to the people who were being uprooted. So that's when many of them start moving to Harlem. In 1920, or 1910, sorry, Central Harlem was 10% African-American. In two decades, by 1930, the African-American population increased to 70%. Why why did Harlem become such the magnet for for African-Americans, also who were coming from the South and not not other parts of New York? Well, I'll tell you how it all begins and then how it continues very strongly. It began because when the elevated railroad came in 1880, a lot of developers made fortunes building beautiful, substantial new residences for white families. Then the subway was due to come in 1904, and the developers built beautiful new houses for more wealthy whites than there were in the city. So their houses were vacant, and they were gorgeous houses and empty for more than a year in many cases. That coincided with the Uh, pushing out of the blacks downtown. And a very clever black realtor comes on the scene and puts together the uptown situation with the downtown. His name was Philip Payton, and he goes to the developers in Harlem saying, I know you don't want to rent to blacks, but you are going bankrupt, so listen up. And that is when, to not go bankrupt, developers started renting in Harlem. Now, there was white resistance, Then there was white flight, and by the 1920s, Harlem becomes possibly the most famous African-American section in the United States. And of course, it gave birth to a cultural and artistic movement or community, which which many people know as the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Um, It actually had a different name at its beginning. It was called the New Negro Movement. Yes. Um, But what was the Harlem Renaissance at its its core? The Harlem Renaissance has a lot in... in, uh, of similarity with what was happening in Greenwich Village before World War I. Uh, Artists, writers knew that this was a place of creativity in Greenwich Village. They came from all over the United States. And the same thing was happening in Harlem after World War I. 
uh, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, County Cullen, the poet, had already been brought up in Harlem. Very few of these people came from Harlem, uh, but County Cullen did. And it was a flowering of creativity. Uh, also, there was money to be had because, especially Alelia Walker, who was the daughter of the first millionaire woman in the United States, self-made millionaire, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, she put on salons which brought together white people from downtown who came with money uh, with the black creative population. And so there was money to be had that brought more black creative people to the neighborhood. And, uh, and it was very appealing. Uh, you often hear in the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North in that period that they marveled that there was actually a black police officer directing traffic. They had never seen anything like it. And so word came out, and uh, liberty was a possibility, and Marcus Garvey and his, uh, his push for blacks to own property and get an education was also going on in the 1920s. And there were also, uh, we, we looked at this around the period of Stonewall, uh, Stonewall 50, mm -hmm. there were actually LGBT people, white LGBT people, who came up to Harlem to, oh, yes. because they felt they could be themselves, and they went to parties, and they had friends. That's and that, right. And that happened actually into the 40s and the 50s as well, before, before Stonewall. Very accepting atmosphere. And people like George Gershwin would go up to hear the music and be inspired by it. Uh, you know, one of the... Uh, people involved in the Harlem Renaissance was W.E. Du Bois. Uh, he was actually one of the founders of the NAACP, the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, which started in New York, and that started before the Harlem Renaissance was even in full swing. Mm -hmm. That was 1909. Um, Harlem went through a decline, albeit it turns out temporarily, but it started happening in the Depression later on in the 30s. That's right. Blacks were often the last to be hired and the first to be fired, and there started being race riots uh, because they just were sick of the injustice that they were forced to live under. And of course, race riots and crime and uh, chaos meant that there were fewer visitors with money coming. And so there was, uh, they were hit very badly in the Depression. People started having rent parties. You could walk on 125th Street and somebody would give you a flyer saying, I need to be able to pay my rent. We're having people, some music, some liquor, come in and pay a small amount, and we're having a rent party to survive. Well, we're beginning to run out of time. I just want to go through a couple of things quickly and then finish up with, with Harlem's rebirth and regeneration. Um, in the after the Second World War into the 40s and 50s and 60s, we saw a decline. Um, the schools were not as good as in the other parts of the city. There was actually a school boycott for a while. There was a, a rent strikes in the 50s and the 60s, led by someone by the name of Jesse Gray. Um, but then, um, not too long ago, Harlem began its regeneration. Very and, much. Uh, even Bill Clinton, when he left the White House. He chose Harlem for his office right. in 2001 and not downtown like other former presidents did who uh, moved to New York. I um, want to just ask a, a couple of things in the, in the minute or so we have left. Um, what is the Schomburg Center? 
Arturo Schomburg was a man who was brought up in Puerto Rico of German and African descent, and he was told in school that blacks had no history. So he moves to New York. He becomes the head of a mail house in a major bank, had friends all over the world, said, give me anything you have on black history. By 1925, he had collected thousands of manuscripts, missionary reports, in, and kept the collection in his apartment. The next year, the city library system purchased it from him and um, put him at the head of the, this library. And today, it is one of the major centers in the world for black history. Mm. Other things in Harlem, of course, we have City College, which is the has <laughs> been the hallmark of the City University, also known as the Poor Man's Harvard. And we have Astor Row and Strivers Row. Uh, Joyce, I always am grateful to have you on the show, and I always, at the end of it, feel like 27 minutes is not enough time to for everyone to take advantage of and for us to really come to know everything that you know about this amazing city. And oh, all thank you very much. Uh, our first guest has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. You can find it about her tours. And it's been my pleasure having you, Joyce. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. We will be back in a minute when we will have our second guest for our episode on Harlem, a Harlem resident who also owns several exciting businesses. Be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka. Tom specializes in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I personally work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But you do not have to worry because there is a really good one. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, who happens to be my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and on podcast. 
You can like Rediscovering New York on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram. My handle is JeffGoodmanNYC. And if you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on a mailing list, you can email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, when I'm not here hosting the show, as many of you know, I am indeed a real estate agent in New York City. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, we have a special guest uh, for our second guest as we journey to Harlem this evening. Uh, He's a resident and local business owner, Carl Franz Williams, whom I've actually had the pleasure of knowing for at least seven or eight years. Carl graduated from Yale University with a degree in electrical engineering, but he eventually shifted his electricity to hospitality, where he is now a nationally recognized restaurateur. Carl began his career outside of electrical engineering as a corporate marketer for the likes of Procter & Gamble and Pepsi, and he's won some key industry awards. He's been honored as one of Fox's businesses, Young Guns, by Black Enterprise Magazine and was the wallpaper City Guide New York Insider for 2012. A passion which started in conversation while working on an innovation project at Pepsi, which we're going to have to ask him about, it ultimately led Carl to pursue opening cocktail lounges, eventually hitting his own mark and style, inspired by lost stories of African-American culinary history and culture. 67 Orange Street, which is not an address, it's actually the name of his first business in Harlem, opened in 2008. Carl's family hails from the stunning Caribbean island of St. Vincent, and I can say that because I've actually been there myself. With the desire to celebrate this heritage and the Caribbean's great spirit, rum, Carl then opened Solomon and Cuff's Rum Hall, located in the Manhattanville Factory District of West Harlem. In fact, the first time I went to Solomon and Cuff, I didn't even know Carl owned it. (laughs) I'll have to talk about that as well. A cocktail and culinary destination for those looking to experience a taste of the new, Carl oversees all operations as well as the cocktail program, which spans over 100 rums and unique rum cocktails. I've only had two of them. I have 98 to go. Carl is a proud resident of Harlem and a founding member of Harlem Park to Park. It's a neighborhood merchant association formed to help more local businesses succeed. His hobbies include snowboarding, hiking, martial arts, and music, and I guess having an occasional rum cocktail at least. Carl, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you, Jeff. Are you from New York originally? Um, Yes. Well, I say yes with a little bit of a pause because I was actually born in Indianapolis, Indiana. (laughs) I don't know that, but... um, And so I moved to Brooklyn when I was six years old. So I I grew up in in New York, um, but I have, you know, wasn't, technically wasn't born here, but I'm a New Yorker. That's, home is where the heart is ultimately, you know, but it's just, I'm always curious as to where people come from who actually make make New York their homes if they weren't born here, like me. I was born and I had no choice. I've lived here my whole Mm -hmm. life except for uh, a year in London. Well, you know, that's always a question. Are you a real New Yorker? What makes a real New Yorker? And so I I feel like once you've been here more than about five years, you're a real New Yorker. Um, But there's not a lot of us who've spent the majority of our lives here. And, and, you know, we can both claim that. Right. We can. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, Well, I was actually out of the city for six years. Exactly. I spent uh, a year in London, three years in Poughkeepsie, and I lived in Suffolk County for two years. So like you, I haven't been here for six years. I mean, I was away in college and then I lived in Puerto Rico for uh, almost three years, two and a half years. So that was after college? That was after college, yeah. Wow, was that yeah. either with P&G or with PepsiCo? That or? was with P&G. Okay. Yeah. Wow, wow. You have a degree in electrical engineering. What had you decide to not pursue that career in what you had spent so much energy and time <laughs> studying in and uh, move on to, to other pastors? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I did use my degree initially. So when I graduated from college, um, 
uh, Procter and Gamble hires a lot of engineers uh, to work in their in their manufacturing plant. So I was a utilities and facilities manager for a manufacturing plant in New Jersey. And so that's how I started my career. So and that was I, I did that for about for about two years. Um, so I used my degree for that amount of time, and then. Uh, at Procter and Gamble, the world revolves around brand marketing, mm-hmm. and these marketers would come to the plant, and, and you know, I really, I was, in, you know, excited about them. I, I thought that what they, the way they were regarded by the organization, um, you know, they just seemed like they were super cool, and I wanted to, you know, um, to have that experience. So, I, um, I was doing well enough that they felt like I could make the transition. It's, it's not a common transition at Procter to move from manufacturing to uh, marketing, mm-hmm. but uh, they supported it for me and I was able to make the change. So I moved into marketing first and, and brand marketing. Um, and, and brand management is really about business. At the end of the day, it's, it's a um, product-centric focus, um, a pro- you know, a product-centric um, method of running a business. So it's all about the brand and what the brand is about and you build your business around that core the core attribute being the brand. Well, I spent 22 years in the media business, and uh, before I went into digital, uh, I actually did a little bit of consumer package good stuff. And okay. I, I never went to Ohio to call on P&G's uh, brands, yeah. but uh, met with agency media people in New York, mm-hmm. and it was a diff- it was a very interesting world. Um, then you went to work for PepsiCo, and that's where you started to get the idea that you mm-hmm. wanted to do something in well, hospitality so or I, in. I've uh, always known that I was uh, had a calling as an entrepreneur like I, I've always felt that that really what I was supposed to be doing was was some sort of business outside of of you know a traditional corporate America um, but you know I grew up in a traditional West Indian family and the idea was that you go to get a good education and then you go to work for a company and you build your career and then maybe you do something after that so um, so I, I was at Procter and Gamble for a couple years um, and um, when I decided to move from from manufacturing to marketing, the opportunity was either to move to Cincinnati or to Puerto Rico. I chose Puerto Rico. I thought that would be, especially at 22 years old, if I had to choose between Cincinnati and Puerto Rico, it was it was a pretty easy choice. San I mean, Juan or Cincinnati? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which, which, which one to choose? With all due respect to our uh, brothers and sisters in, in Cincinnati. Absolutely. Um, but the tropics called. Obviously, it's very similar to St. Vincent in that sense. So I moved there. And... Um, I love coffee shops. I, I've always had a, uh, I mean, I, f- I find them to be just compelling places, whether it's the smell of coffee, uh, the fact that you can sit there all day, that it, you know, it's an office away from your office. Uh, there's always great, interesting people. Um, and so when I got to Puerto Rico, one of the things that I realized was that there weren't coffee shops that I, like what I knew. Um, and um, so I, like, here's my opportunity. I started working on a business plan to open a coffee shop in Puerto Rico. Um, and... Um, um, then Pepsi called, uh-huh. and I decided to move back to New York. I mean, I wanted to get back to New York. I'd been in in, New, in in Puerto Rico for about two and a half years, so I decided to move back to New York and take the job with Pepsi. And I shelved the business plan, um, and that's what brought me to Harlem. So, did you work at the campus in Purchase or uh, exactly? Uh-huh. I was in Purchase, and PepsiCo was another company that I uh, called. I actually, I was surprised to find that one of my colleagues, who sits about twenty feet from me, her husband walked in one day, and it's like. Tim, <laughs> I know him through PepsiCo. I had yeah. no idea there was that connection. It's uh, even New York can be a small place. But yeah, so when I when I moved back to New York, the idea of being in, uh, I, I wanted to be in an area that I thought had development promise. 
Um, and so I, I moved. I chose Harlem one because it was. It, it, I saw that. I, I felt like it was a neighborhood that was rich with possibility, um, and it was also a great, sh a short drive up to purchase. Uh, and when I got to Harlem, I realized that that coffee shop that wasn't in Puerto Rico also wasn't in Harlem. And, and so, did you open up a business? So before? then, my first business was a coffee shop in Harlem. Oh, so I, I opened Society Coffee while still at Pepsi. I did both for about um, three or four years, and then I left Pepsi full time when I decided to open Sixty Seven Orange Street. When did you open Society Coffee? Uh, it was two thousand five. Uh -huh. So it was open from two thousand five to two thousand eleven. What were some of the things that inspired you to? Open sixty seven Orange Street. It's not a coffee shop. It's a it's a right. very uh, special cocktail oh, cocktail place. I'd yeah. cocktail, but yes, it is. And the concoctions are, are, are really something. Uh, what inspired you to to want to have a bar and to and yeah. to want to so mix? So one of the you know um, the idea of a more artisanal artisanal approach to um, to food and drinks was already the way that I was doing things. I mean, we were doing latte art. You know, before that was the big thing to do, um, um, and uh, you know, so and 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 I loved creating. I mean, I loved what we had done in creating this space. That, like I said, you just felt comfortable there. I mean, people connected there. Uh, it was warm. It was inviting. And um, and so, I, I still wasn't sure that I was ready to make that leap, that full commitment to move from traditional, um, a traditional lifestyle to uh, to that of an entrepreneur full-time and so I decided to um, you know I, I continued there and Pepsi saw my interest and my passion for uh, being an entrepreneur and so I moved into uh, in their innovation department now the innovation department it, the, the thing there was the, the job that I had was come up with the next great Pepsi idea far out think however you want to do get inspiration from wherever you can and for inspiration, I started talking. I mean, I was talking to the hipsters. I was talking to skateboarders. I was, you know, what, and I was talking to. I started talking to mixologists. Mm -hmm. um, and so I met uh, a guy named Steve Olson, who we're still very good friends. And Steve was introduced me to this world, and I was blown away. It it, it took drinking, and you know, at this point, I was just just turning thirty, and 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 it wasn't just about a means to an end. It was an experience. It was a culinary experience in a glass, and that really, really resonated with me. Um, I wanted to bring some of that into Society Coffee, and I started to play with our wine program and do, um, you know, mixed drinks. Um, you know, we were doing interesting juices and things like that, and and but it, it was just very, very intriguing to me. And so, um, one day I saw an open retail space. I decided to buy. It was a commercial condo. I decided to buy it, and um, oh, so you own the space in Sixty Seven Orange Street. Ah, uh, yes. Oh yeah. well, that because yeah. I was gonna. I was thinking about asking a question of how long will it be until you get priced out because the rents are going up, and the answer is you never will be. Well, yeah, or I'll I'll sell the space. But you know, yeah. and, and so I, I made the, the decision um, that I wanted to open a cocktail bar, and. Again, once I did it, I fell in love with it, and then my career has gone in that direction. Mm. Uh, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure of being to 67 Orange Street, it's on Frederick Douglass West between 112th and 113th, is it? Or Yes, between 112th okay, and 113th. And, and uh, it is, it's really very special. I, the picture of you that we used for, for the social media promotion shows a very intricate 
mixing, you know, which I, you know, which <laughs> speaks to me as someone who likes cocktails and, and, and mixed drinks. Mm -hmm. But also the times I've been at 267 Orange Street, and I don't think I've ever seen you in the bar, mm. your staff has the same care in mixing those drinks as, yep. as you do in that picture. Yeah. Uh, and as you did at an event I was at recently where you, <laughs> that, was, right. uh, that was great. Uh, food was excellent. And of course, the drinks were, uh, were yeah, I, really, I really do enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's, it is, uh, bartending is a, is a craft, is a trade. And, and um, I, you know, it was one thing to just open this and to be a business owner, but the trade, the craft part of it was also something that I got really into. And so I have, um, um, I've, that has become more than just, I mean, so yes, I am a restaurateur, but I am also known for my work with cocktails, with spirits. Um, I've, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying, developing there. Uh, there's a program called The Bar, which is run by Steve Olson and a group of other guys. And, and, and basically what this program does, it's like becoming a sommelier for cocktails or for spirits. And so there's very few people who have it in the world. There's a small group of, you know, a few hundred people, and, and I'm one of them. So it wasn't for me. This was something that was not just about it. Yes, it's about business, but it was also about this passion and this trade. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Carl Franz Williams and also ask him about his more recent time in Harlem. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. <laughs> I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talkingalternative.com We are back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, that's me, and our second guest is Carl Franz Williams. Carl owns 67 Orange Street, and also Solomon and Cuff, which we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. Um, Harlem is such a big neighborhood, and we talked in the first half about it, it being the biggest neighborhood in Manhattan. It goes river to river, 96th Street on the east to 155th Street on the west. Um, where in Harlem do you live, specifically? So I'm in central Harlem. Um, I've been in Harlem now 17 years, so I moved, uh, when I moved back from I mean, from Puerto Rico, I, I settled in Harlem, and I've been here ever since. That was 2001. 
Um, and the neighborhood, I mean, I love Harlem. It, it, it is, um, you know, it's got this incredible history, particularly for African Americans and, you know, the Harlem Renaissance and, and what that period was. And so that, um, that in of itself makes it, a, a, makes it attractive to me to live there. But it's also just, a, I mean, it, you have these really wide streets, uh, really wide sidewalks. You have the parks. I mean, the parks are, I don't know if there's another neighborhood with more parks in it. And each of them has their own sort of character. Uh, I lived for years on, on, Mount, on Marcus Garvey Park, right on Mount Morris Park West. And just to see how that park transformed with time and, you know, and, and how... Um, I mean, that park has had so much meaning to me. I would work out in the park. I would do the calisthenics in the park. I played basketball there. You know, I would, um, uh, you know, just sit down and have little picnics and all. And now, now I live on Morningside Park, and it's it's just. I mean, I have a, a, a 14 month old. And oh, congratulations! Thank you. I didn't know that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So being able to go into the park with him and and um, you know have little family picnics in the park it's 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 really really great i mean harlem harlem is, is, is a special place for me you know this is the only episode where i can say that i also live in the neighborhood that we're covering because i also live in harlem i live on 130th in madison yeah um and i'll the other thing I, I i like about harlem is just the the, the you know there's all these personalities you know it, it's it's like Yes, I mean, there's people that everyone everyone's heard of Dapper Dan, right? You know, um, and you hear about somebody like him, and you may read about, it, but you're actually going to see him go walking down the street, you know. Um, you know, there's uh, my friend Dard, who's this you know fashion icon dude who runs and jogs everywhere. You see him jogging through Harlem. Um, you know, there's the guy who's on the corner of Lenox Avenue working out every <laughs> all the time. So he literally works out on the corner, and you know he'll have his bands and. You know, people walk by and see him. I mean, uh, um, you know, it's just a, it's just a, 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 the the cast of characters, the interesting people who you encounter uh, are in Harlem. And, and and I think one of the the other unique things about the people who are in Harlem today is that it I it, I feel like even though it's a huge neighborhood, there's a big sense of community. People know each other. They know each other's names. You walk into the restaurants. You're greeted by friends. Um, and maybe I'm partially biased because owning a restaurant. Um, I've gotten to know a lot of people in the area, but I do think there's something unique in the way people interact in Harlem. Mm. Well, I would agree with that. One of the things that I didn't realize, you know, like a lot of people, I moved up to Harlem when it was time to buy. Because uh, my then partner and I, we wanted to buy a place together and wanted a bigger place that was relatively centrally located. And we found mm. the place and uh, it was affordable for us. But um, I didn't realize this till after I started spending time and living in Harlem that one thing I love about Harlem is that it reminds me of the South. Mm, I used to okay. spend a significant amount of time in New Orleans, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, a lot of the people who live in Harlem, their grandparents are from the South, their great grandparents are from the South, and you hear okay. and that and that and that the sense about it really is pervasive, especially with some of the old people who are around. You yeah, do get the sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, people say hello. Yeah. You know, they'll smile at you, and and this is New York City, which you know, so that's even that is is very uncommon. But you walk down the street, you get to know your neighbors, um, and it's it's it, you know, I mean, the buildings are are the you know, have a lot of the old architecture still there. Um, so it's it's I love I mean it's a neighborhood I love very much. Has the part of Harlem where you opened 67 Orange Street, and now you live a few blocks away from that? Um, yeah. Uh, have you seen that part of the neighborhood change? Oh, tremendously so. I mean, it's been 11 years since I opened 67 Orange. And so, um, 
you know, when I first opened up there, first of all, a lot of the buildings that are there today hadn't been built yet. Um, so there were a lot more vacant lots. Uh, and there was, you know, um, it, the, the neighborhood hadn't turned yet. So there was still a lot of, of uh, you know, uh, drug activity and, um, and um, you know, it, it didn't, it, 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 it felt a little bit different than it does now. Now it's, you know, it's Disneyland. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of young families and, um, you know, um, the, lots of buildings have been built. All the vacant lots have been filled in with development now. Yes, absolutely, and also that uh, that uh, the northwestern part of the park has been redone. I mean, it's yes, really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the gas station is gone too. Gas station <laughs> is gone. Gas station is now a high-rise luxury condo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you know, it. One of the things that I and you know, and, and I, I would talk about this when people asked me when they asked me about the gentrification and how. Um, how I felt about it, uh, and it, you know, it's interesting because some would argue that I I gentrified the neighborhood. <laughs> right? I opened the first coffee shop on Frederick Douglass Boulevard before there was anything else really there. I mean, the, the neighborhood had hadn't even gotten close to turning, and um, uh, it's now the model that um, most of the coffee shops are built on. Uh, you know, is is what we were doing with Society Coffee then. Uh, the first cocktail bar. 67 Orange Street. These both of these came in to, at a time when there wasn't much else on Frederick Douglass, and they showed uh, both people who were coming into the neighborhood that they could ha enjoy what they were getting or wanted downtown and other neighborhoods in Harlem. Um, it gave you know realtors something to show off, mm -hmm. um, and so you know uh, the, the the price point, the uh, the way the restaurants are structured, they were they were certainly uh, a step up. From what was at, in the neighborhood at the time, and um, and so, you know, it, it becomes this interesting question of of I mean, one of the things I would you know often talk about was there's there is the, the, the fear in gentrification is the idea of displacement, and um, initially at least a lot of the development in Harlem was less about displacement, um, but there was all this it was filling in these gaps. So there was like I talked about all these these lots that were there and new buildings came up. And the people moved into those buildings, um, and um, there were older buildings that, that had openings in, and people moved in, and so th there wasn't this immediate sort of displacement. Um, some of that is certainly happening now, and, and that's unfortunate. Where a lot of where uh, you know both businesses and uh, people are being priced out. One of the I've seen lots of businesses go out of business, mainly because not because that they weren't able to um, you know to turn a profit. But because once their lease ended, that was it. Mm -hmm. They couldn't afford the new rent. Well, that's the, uh, unfortunately happens with neighborhoods as they change. But, you know, on the other hand, nothing's permanent and everything is going to go through some state of change. But you have a, uh, an ownership uh, in 67 Orange Street property, so that will, you won't get displaced so quickly. Um, I'm sorry, we're at a time. We didn't get a chance to talk about Solomon and Cuff, but I'm going to plug it. It's a Caribbean and rum mixology restaurant. It's on 133rd Street and 12th Avenue. I've been there and I've had their painkillers and I've had them in the BDI, the British Virgin Islands, so you know they're authentic. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on our journey to Harlem today. Our second guest has been Carl Franz Williams, the owner of 67 Orange Street and also Solomon and Cuff. If you have questions or comments about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram. That's Jeff Goodman NYC. 
Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent, including my home neighborhood, Harlem, at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential. Live life your way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.